We've come to our next major event. You could call it Sinai or Law, and that'll include Exodus 19 through 20 and even beyond. In fact, the rest of the book of Exodus, but we'll focus on chapters 19 and 20. And we'll look at some of those passages. So we've, we've seen the creation, we've seen the fall, we've seen the flood, we've seen the scattering, Abraham and the covenant, we've seen the exodus, and the exodus I dated at 1445, and shortly after that we have law, or Sinai, however you want to describe it, and essentially it's dealing with what God does in Exodus 19 and 20 with the children of Israel. And it takes the history of Israel one step further and gives them the next essential in forming them into a nation. Constitution. Very good. So what he's done is he has brought a people out of the womb of Egypt. They have a unified experience. They have seen the plagues of Egypt, how God is sovereign over the gods of the Egyptians, and God desires them to abandon those gods, because they are no gods. He is the sovereign. He is the omnipotent. He is the omniscient God. And he's brought them out, so they've had that unified experience. They saw their very lives on the verge of extinction when the Egyptian army came after them, and God miraculously splits the waters, and they are able to escape, and God uses those very waters to destroy the Egyptian army. Then they proceed to Mount Sinai, where God gives them their constitution. That will be the next phase of what God is doing in creating a nation, and this is still in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, or at least the next phase of it. The underlying... Perfection of God related to law is God's truth. God is a God of truth. In fact, God is truth. In our introduction, I made a big point that if you're searching for truth, the truth is found in God himself. He is truth. Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, truth is basically found in God himself. And the spirit is called the spirit of truth. So, what we're going to see is a revelation of truth in the form of law, in the form of God's standards, in the form of practical things that will guide the life of the Israelites. And this truth will be their unifying document that, unifies them as a people. And because it's from God, it is not only truth, but it is inspired and revelatory. So God is truth. His knowledge, his declarations and representations eternally conform to reality. He is the source of all truth. So he is truth and he is the source of all truth. It's a statement by a theologian by the name of Thesis. God is truth. And again, there are hundreds of verses. Let's look at a couple of them. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. That's the opposite of truth. Nor a son of man that he should repent. He has no need to repent. He has no need to change. He's always conforming to reality. Has he said, and will he not do it? In other words, when he speaks, he's going to act. We've been seeing that. We saw that he gave a covenant, and we already saw that he moved to act. Last part of Numbers twenty-three nineteen. Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God is truth. He's going to speak from Sinai. He's going to enter into a new covenant. That covenant is going to be just as truthful, just, and he's going to be just as faithful to that covenant as we have already seen the Abrahamic covenant. It's going to be a different covenant. It's going to call upon the children of Israel. They're going to have stipulations. In fact, most of the law are stipulations for Israel. So Numbers 23, 19 emphasizes that God is truth, 
And everything that he says, he accomplishes. Everything that he speaks, he's going to make it good. In the New Testament, John 3.33, He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. God is true. So truth is found in God. And he is also the source of all. So in our little outline in the Old Testament, anticipating the coming of Messiah, we have the origin of Israel. That's Genesis. We've been looking at the emergence of Israel beginning in the book of Exodus. So we'll continue in that. We saw the formation or the beginning of the formation of the nation. First of all, the bondage and birth in the book of Exodus, preparation for deliverance. The defeat of the Egyptians, those are the plagues, chapters 5 through 18. This is on your outline sheet. And now we're going to look at the revelation at Sinai. And that begins in chapter 19 and actually runs through at least verse chapter 31. And we're not going to look at all of that, but we're going to look at pertinent passages relating to the revelation at Sinai. A little summary here of biblical history on our timeline from the beginning to, oh, what, 17, what was it, 1775, somewhere, we have the origin of Israel, time frame of Genesis, chronology of Genesis. From that period to well beyond the the Exodus, which would include conquest as well, we have the emergence. So the law would be in that time frame. We're in the same geographical Location, except now, leaving Egypt. This is what some scholars believe would be the path from Egypt in the Sinai Peninsula here, proceeding south. And if they stop at the traditional site of Sinai, it would be located in this area, the southern area of the Sinai Peninsula. In the process, I'll show you an alternative site that other scholars have suggested and it possibly could be the site of Sinai rather than, than this one. And it's over here in Midian because of some of the wording and some of the descriptions. In fact, here it is. Traditional site right there. There's a, what's called a Jebel al-Laz right over here. And, and by the way, those that hold to this viewpoint believe that it's possible that the children of Israel could have crossed this area right there, because this is fairly shallow, but they don't need shallowness. All they need is God's hand there. This is the traditional site, St. Catherine's Monastery back over here. And I showed you these shots, Jebel Musa. These are the steps up to Mount Sinai, the steps of repentance. And we've seen that, Exodus 19, 1 through 8. And then later I'll, I'll show you the alternative site. So that kind of gives us the setting. Let's, let's look at a few passages. Let's look at Exodus 19, and let's read those. This is kind of the setting for the giving of the law. Colin, do you want to read Exodus 19? And just read, and I'll stop you. Maybe more than once. <laughs> On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land, on that day, they came into the Okay, stop there. Third month, so we have a chronology. This is history. This is not mythological. Third month after they left Egypt, so this is some time frame. Time has progressed. On that very day, come to the wilderness of Sinai. So, have the wilderness of Sinai. Read verse 2. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on evil things, and brought you to myself. Okay, stop there. So in verse 4, a reminder... Moses is reminding them of what God has done, or what God is reminding them. You have seen what I have done. So all the stuff that we talked about, we were talking about the event of the Exodus. Plagues, the Exodus itself, God dealing with Pharaoh, God dealing with Moses, God demonstrating his omnipotence. A reminder of what he has done. 
And this is spectacular. I hope I've pictured this was not a minor event. This is a, one of the most important events of world history. This is important to some of the others that we've looked at. You want to read Mackenzie beginning in verse 5? Okay, stop there. What important word you see in that verse, verse 5? Covenant. What is this covenant? Can't be Abrahamic, right? Because it's unconditional and there's no provisions for them to obey it. Can't be Noahic. It also is unconditional. So this is a, a different covenant. He is going to introduce us to what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. He's going to be dealing with the Mosaic Covenant now. And the law is essentially the Mosaic Covenant. Notice, you shall be my own possession. A special relationship. God is calling this people to have a relationship with him. Remember, he has rejected the world system, and he is going to use Israel to reach the nations, but Israel are going to be a special possession to God. And he's going to deal with them in a very intimate way. All the peoples for all the earth is mine. In other words, everything belongs to him, but they will have a special relationship. Okay, read verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a nation. Okay, very important. This is their mission. This is the essential purpose that God has for this people. Before they're even a nation, they are going to be a nation of what? This gives their essential mission. Kingdom of what? Kingdom of priests. They are going to be a kingdom. In other words, they're going to be a nation. They're going to be an empire. And they're going to be an empire of priests. So they are going to have rulership. God is giving them rulership. This is the dominion mandate worked out in the nation of Israel. He's going to give them sovereignty to some extent. And part of that sovereignty is going to include priesthood. And what is the essential nature of priests? Well, they're spiritual, but what's their function? What's their role? Mediators. Mediators. So the idea here is Israel is to mediate between God and the Gentiles. Israel is to be the means by which Gentiles come to God. Now because of the nature of man, Gentiles aren't going to be knocking on Israel's door. The purpose of Israel is that they were intended to be a people that basically not only demonstrate who God is, but actually go out and actually reach the nations for God. So we have their essential purpose right off the bat, and they're not even a nation yet. Okay, Connie, do you want to do seven and eight? So Moses went back to some of the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had committed to speak. People always come together with everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought the answer back to Lord. Wow. Pretty optimistic. Pretty self-assured as well. We'll do all that the Lord asks. Now they're thinking of all the the greatness that he has already demonstrated. Oh yeah, it's going to be easy for us to serve you. Little do they know how stubborn and how hard of heart they actually are. And we'll see it very early as well. So here's the response of the people. So even before they have the law... We see at least a willingness, very optimistic willingness. Well, this is that alternative site. Just to give you some visuals, to give you a feel for what that area looks like. And one of the reasons it's an alternative site is notice the darkened rock seems to have been burnt. That's Jebel Alas on that other map that I showed you. And this is what it looks like from the bottom. And those that su- suggest this site suggest that it's possible children of Israel could have resided in a place like that, a valley, something like that. But that's the alternative site. But the traditional site, this is what it looks like from the top. So these are the mountains of Sinai from Jebel Musa as you look out into that area in the Sinai. Well, what did we say that it takes for the people to be a nation? 
Three things. Anybody remember? You got the first one already. Common language. Not necessarily. Uh, broader than that. Broader than language and culture. Put them together. Common people. And you could say a common people with a common experience, like the children of Israel, and could include a common culture, and could include a common language. But particularly a common people that have several things in common. And by now, they are the common people that are descendants of Israel. And eventually they'll be called Israel, and it'll be called the nation of Israel. They're still a people, technically, and the second thing that they need to be a nation, constitution, which is the law. So a common constitution, that's what binds us as a nation, our constitution. And unfortunately we have some that are undermining it, which is going to lead to damage to our country. But the law... Think of it not only as law, but think of it in terms of a document that binds these people and regulates their entire culture. This is a very broad document that will regulate every aspect of their lives, even to where they go to the bathroom. And it's a covenant. Now, I'll come back to that slide, but just to fill out the slide, what would be the third thing? I don't have it on there. Land. That won't come until the conquest. You can add that right away. Let's take a look at this covenant or constitution. It's both. And who are the parties? It's going to be God and Israel. We'll see that over and over in this. God and the 12 tribes. When I say Israel at this stage, they're not a nation yet, but they're 12 tribes. And what are the stipulations? Well, the stipulations are very, very detailed, and it includes all of the details of the Mosaic Law. Those are stipulations, the do's and don'ts. It will be the governing document, like I said, that will regulate what they eat, how they worship, how they approach God, and mainly how they approach God and how they uh, relate to God. It will deal with how they relate to one another, It'll regulate uh, all the institutions. It'll regulate marriage. It'll regulate families. It'll regulate government. It'll regulate uh, foreign affairs. So every aspect of a nation will be regulated by the stipulations of the Mosaic Law. Let me say this up front as well. Just We'll talk about this more. But this is important to understand. This aspect of a covenant partly in terms of you and I, because we are not under the law. That's the New Testament. We're not under law, we're under grace. So the Mosaic law is not legally binding to the church or believers in the church age. That doesn't mean it's not valuable. It's valuable in terms of its revelatory value and other value and guidelines and wisdom. But we can eat pork. We don't have to observe Sabbath in the way that is specified. We can, it might be wise to rest, but we're not under the Mosaic Law. And there's some denominations that have Sabbath worship and that sort of thing. We're not under law. This is what law was for. It was to regulate the nation of Israel. Now, it's also, it's got, it's broad enough in some aspects, that anyone that wanted to live by it would be wise, particularly the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. There are blessings and there are curses involved in the Mosaic Law, and if children of Israel obey the law, they would be blessed. We have assurance over and over and over. But the counterpart, if they violate the law, and we will see, historically throughout their history, they have violated the law, and God curses them according to what the law said. This is an all-encompassing document. We're going to see later on, when we talk about the kingdom, the kings are going to be measured in relationship to how they kept the Mosaic law, and they and the nation will experience either the blessings or the curses of the law. 
And the main theme of the prophets, this will be another theme that I'll develop, the main theme of Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, all the prophets, Jonah, Malachi, all the prophets, Micah, maybe not so much Jonah, but some of the other, most of the other prophets. These prophets are going to basically reveal how Israel is violating the law. And they will pronounce cursings on the nation. If they do not repent, then this is what's going to follow, and it's going to be according to what's specified in the law. So this is a far-reaching document for the nation of Israel. The signing, it's going to involve two parties. It's going to involve Israel, children of Israel, and it's conditional. God will perform based on the response of Israel. This is different. The two covenants we've looked at so far are unconditional. This one is radically different. This one is conditional. It'll involve Israel and obedience. And fourthly, the sign of it is the Sabbath. That's the sign of the covenant. Sign of the Noahic was what? No, not circumcision. Noahic. Rainbow. (laughs) The sign of the Abrahamic is circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic is Sabbath observance. So it's at the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. And it plays a big role in the history of Israel, and we see it very prominent even in the life of Christ. Remember, Jesus was living under the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. So to have a nation, you need a common people. You need a common constitution, the law. And when we get to uh, the conquest, we will talk about a common land. And what is promised is the land of Canaan. And that's probably a good place to stop for today. And we'll pick up next time and continue the law. So next week, what we will do is we'll complete our study of the law. And we may even have time to complete our our next study on conquest. Well, this is our 11th session, so getting ever so close to the end here. We're going to finish up the discussion on the law. We started looking at what you might call the events around Sinai, dealing with the giving of the law. So we're going to continue and... It kind of begins in chapter 19, that's the setting for the giving of the law. Chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. Then after 20 through chapter 31, we have more stipulations and more law, but those are more the expansion and somewhat of an elaboration of the Ten Commandments that you have in chapter 20. So on our timeline, we have our major events Creation first, fall, flood, scattering, Abrahamic covenant, including Abraham there. Last time we looked at the Exodus, and now we want to focus on an event shortly after the Exodus. I'm using the one word law to describe it. You could use Sinai as well, but law, I think, is more focused on what the event is all about. And in terms of the life of Moses, we're in the book of Exodus, so we saw we've been tracing his life. And on our timeline, born 1525, using the same chronological dating that I've used. And we have specific numbers for that that we can trace back to. And in 1445, Moses is in Midian. So you can divide his life into three parts, this early life to Midian, and then from 1485, another 40 years, to 1444, the Exodus. That's the event we looked at last time. And then we have, with Moses, 40 years of wilderness experience, and then he dies. So you can divide his life into those three three phases. So... The children of Israel are actually in the wilderness at the beginning, and there's going to be an incident in which they are basically rebellious, and rather than entering into the land, the generation that left Egypt 
is prohibited from entering into the land of Canaan. And God uh, keeps them in a wilderness until all of the males over age 20 die off during that period of time. And then after the wilderness, then we have a new generation, and that's where the book of Deuteronomy fits in. It's a re-giving of the law. So Deuteronomy, which actually means kind of second law or second giving of the law, Moses reiterates much of what we have in the book of Exodus, much of the detail concerning the giving of the law, and he rehearses some of their history as well, and he even looks ahead and predicts virtually all of their future in the book of Deuteronomy. And then it's after that, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies, and then we move to the next major event, the conquest, which we'll also look at in this session. So that gives you kind of a context of where we're at. And one of the implications that we looked at last time, the first major implication, when you think of the Mosaic Law, think of it in terms of Israel's constitution. It is a covenant. It is a national document. It is a legal document. And as far as Israel is concerned, it will regulate the nation in every aspect. In fact, it regulates so many aspects that it becomes even a, a burden to those that are under it. And obviously, Israel is unable to even abide by it. We see that historically. But the point I'm making here is when you think of the law... An important aspect of it is it's Israel's constitution. So let's take a look at that. Last time we saw that it was part of the constitution. I mentioned there's three aspects that make a nation. It has to have a common people, and God developed that common people and united them in the womb of Israel. And they had a common experience of the exodus and then now at Sinai, they're given a constitution. That's the second aspect of what a nation needs to be a nation. And all of this will lead up to the third major element, which is a common land, which we'll look at in the next major event. But before we get there, let's take a look at what are the characteristics of this Mosaic law in particular and what God has revealed at Sinai. What are the major characteristics? Number one, we're dealing with, in large measure, not just legal stipulations, not just do's and don'ts, but number one, many of what God specifies here are absolutes. Absolutes. And these are absolutes that are defined by God. And one reason I like to emphasize this is because in the culture we live in today, the culture rejects the concept of absolutes. Everything is relative. Everything is subject to change, including God's institutions. But one of the characteristics of the Mosaic Law is that God has said certain things, and these are legally binding, not only to Israel, but in some cases, like the Ten Commandments, at least nine of them, they are essentially absolutes that can't be tampered with. And we need to view them from that perspective because they're defined as absolutes by God himself. So when we deal with the law, we're talking about unchanging standards, unchanging concepts that uh, have definite ramifications, sometimes not immediate, but always have ramifications in those that violate. Plus, those that obey as well, there are ramifications for them as well. And only God can define true values, ultimate values, because only he has a divine and an omniscient perspective, so he gives that. He's the only one that can define ethics, those things that are absolute in ethics. He's the only one that can define law and give us all the things that pertain to a relationship to him. So it's impossible to separate private ethics from public codes or laws. And that's what we have in the Mosaic Law, a combination of the two. 
So social behavior is measured by God's absolutes. The unbelieving view is, like I said, everything is is relative and subject to change. There's two ends when it comes to the secular world, two ends of the spectrum when it comes to law. There's the end of absolute liberty or an extreme of liberty to the point of licentiousness. But a culture can't operate under complete licentiousness because man in his sinfulness needs boundaries, needs absolutes, needs law. The other end of the spectrum is when uh, when there are excess of liberty without controls, then people fall into these traps of falling into things that are damaging and, and hurtful. So then culture intervenes to stiffen and to narrow these boundaries such that we have a legal system, so that things become legalistic. So there's a balance between licentiousness and legalism, and I think only God can divide those two. So a culture will tend in the two directions. Our culture today is tending almost schizophrenic in both directions at the same time. People want absolute liberty to be able to do whatever they please, and people also see a need to impose an abundance of laws. So we have lots of laws in the culture which we live in. The balance is basically what God has revealed in the Mosaic Law. Another characteristic of the Mosaic Law is it's a covenant. So it has all of those characteristics that we talked about, dealing with contracts or covenants. And remember, a covenant is a legally binding document that specifies behavior. It gives stipulations that regulates how the parties are to behave under that contract. And the Mosaic Law has great detail concerning these stipulations, great detail concerning what behavior is permissible. And a contract or a covenant has parties to it. That's also very important. Who are the parties to the Mosaic Covenant? God and the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. So, the nation of Israel is legally bound to the Mosaic Contract, and God binds himself to perform as well. God makes promises within the the Mosaic Covenant, and the essence of his promise is that he will bless those that obey And he will also deal with those that disobey. So there's consequences, and God will impose those, and particularly on the nation of Israel. So the Mosaic law is not binding in terms of the nations. The nations are not party to the Mosaic law. Now, within the law, there are also these absolutes that, in fact, are applicable to all of humanity. So even though they're not under the the nations are not under the contract, violating some of the absolutes, particularly the Ten Commandments, brings ultimate consequence as well. So you need to keep in mind that some of these absolutes are applicable on a, on a universal basis. But a lot of the stipulations are local in terms of Israel alone. Particularly things like the, the regulations on food, the different foods that are permissible, those are applicable to the nation of Israel particularly. Things pertaining to even Sabbath, which is one of the Ten Commandments, that's particular to Israel as well. Things pertaining to things relating to the feasts, those are particular to Israel as well. Things pertaining to the sacrificial system, that's particular to Israel as well. So the church is not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not bound by it. That's what the New Testament means, that we are not under law. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. The things in the law that are absolutes, we can't escape those, but all the other ceremonial, the the things that pertain to Israel in particular, we're not under those specifications. We're not under the sacrificial system, we don't, uh, we're not bound to observe the Sabbath. 
We can eat things that are not that are specified for Israel not to eat, like pork, because we're not bound by that. In fact, Christ declared all foods clean. Is what the New Testament tells us. Does that make sense? You see the distinction between the absolutes and a, and a covenant that's binding. The law is the Mosaic covenant. This one and the same, and that's different from the Abrahamic covenant. That's a different covenant. This is a Mosaic covenant that is different from the Noahic, and it's different from the Abrahamic. And we'll see some other covenants later as well. Thirdly, another characteristic, and this is different from the the covenants that we've looked at so far, the Mosaic covenant is conditional. Conditional. And what we mean by that primarily relates to God himself, in that God is going to act, based on how Israel performs. In other words, when Israel is obedient to the covenant, God is going to bring blessing. And he legally binds himself to bring blessing to the nation of Israel. Also, when the nation of Israel is disobedient, he has specified that he will act accordingly and bring cursing or bring calamity. Does that make sense? So it's conditional in terms of how Israel responds, if they violate the the covenant, then God's going to respond in a certain way. If they're obedient to the covenant, God will act in a different way. So this is a conditional covenant. Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Only God binds himself to do all of the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? And the three things that are the stipulations in the Abrahamic covenant, he's going to produce a nation through the seed of Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. No matter what, God was going to do that. There was going to be a nation of Israel. There were going to be descendants from Abraham. No matter what Abraham did, no matter what Isaac did, no matter what Jacob did, there were going to be descendants that would lead to a nation. Because it's unconditional. He promised them a land. And Israel historically has been in and out of the land. They've been in and out of the land because part of the land is a subset of the Mosaic Covenant. We call that the Palestinian Covenant. And that tells us that if Israel corrupts itself, then they'll be kicked out of the land, even in Deuteronomy. Moses predicts that, or God through Moses. So, the land portion is unconditional from the Abrahamic covenant in that Israel will ultimately occupy all of the land that God specifies in the Abrahamic covenant. The land part is conditional because there's aspects of the land that are also part of the Mosaic and it's dependent on Israel's faithfulness. So that's why Israel sometimes is cast into exile or into captivity, and then they come back, they're dispersed in 70 AD, they're back in the land today, and that's because of the conditional aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. Does that make sense? So you have kind of an overlap in terms of the land. And there's going to be a blessing aspect, that's the third unconditional aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant, And ultimately, Galatians 3 tells us that Jesus fulfills a major part of that. And no matter what Israel did, Messiah was going to come. Messiah was going to introduce salvation and some aspects of the new covenant. No matter what Israel did, because that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And all of the blessing aspects, which have not yet totally been fulfilled, will, in fact, be fulfilled because it's unconditional. The Mosaic is different. It's conditional. Another characteristic, and this is sometimes overlooked, the Mosaic Covenant at every point is personal. It's not just legalistic, but it has personal ramifications. And particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, the heart attitude is specified. God specifies things that no government can regulate because he's dealing with heart attitudes and only things that God can deal with. This makes the Mosaic Covenant different from any other law code that has ever been put together. 
Because all man can regulate is external behavior. We can't regulate thoughts, even though we're trying to. We're trying to regulate thought crimes or hate crimes. But that's it's too subjective. You, you can't get into somebody's mind and evaluate accurately. So it's kind of a misguided direction that we're taking in our country. But the Mosaic Law is personal and it deals with heart issues because God can see the heart and God is the one that is regulating the Mosaic Covenant. So it deals with heart issues. It deals with not just external behavior. That's why it talks about circumcision of the heart in the book of Deuteronomy very often. This was this heart attitude was one of the problems that Jesus encountered in the first century with the scribes and the Pharisees because they had turned the Mosaic law into an external law code and they were overlooking the personal heart attitudes that uh, were behind the Mosaic law. And for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is describing some of the stipulations of the Ten Commandments, he says it was said that you shall not kill. Remember that in Matthew chapter 5. But he says, but I say, if anyone is angry with his brother, it's the equivalent with killing. Well, that's a heart attitude. Anger. And what Jesus is saying is the Mosaic law goes to the very heart. The things that the externals are produced as a result of the outworking of those heart attitudes. So what anger, when it is expressed outwardly, it can end in the extreme of murder. So Jesus kind of equates the two because murder finds its source in man's heart and in man's anger. You see that there? Similar with adultery. He, he does the same thing with adultery. It's, it's a heart attitude. That's the nature of the Mosaic Law. And sometimes that's overlooked. The Ten Commandments are the Mosaic Law. They're part of the law. That's the heart of the Mosaic Law. It's not the entirety of it. Read Leviticus. Read chapters 21 through 31 of Exodus. Read large portions of the book of Deuteronomy. Read parse portions of Numbers. And that gives you a lot of the stipulations of the Mosaic Law. Another characteristics. Number five. This was a public giving of a law, public, historical, real, and the point being here is this is a, a historical event, the giving of the law. Had you been there, and Charlie Clough likes to make the big point, that had you been there and had a tape recorder, you could have heard the voice of God recorded in that recording where God is revealing the law. He spoke it, and it was audible. And the children of Israel heard it. And not only that, not only was it audible, but notice also, turn to Exodus chapter 19, and let's read a couple of passages. Read, Loretta, why don't you start us off? Read verse 9 in chapter 19. And Linda, do you want to read verse 16? Mark, you want to do 18 and 19? And... Randy chapter 20 verse 1. And I want you to notice the emphasis on visible, audible, historical, real things happening here that people could sense. That's the emphasis of all these passages. You got verse 9 there? 19 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you and make the clouds so that people may hear when I speak with you. And they also believe in you forever. And most told words of people to the Lord. Okay. Notice there. He's going to come in a visible way. In a thick cloud. And the people are going to be able to what? They're going to hear the very words that God's going to utter or speak. Now how this happens, I don't know. But if you were there, you were going to be able to hear words spoken. Revelation Given. You want to read 16, Linda? Read it loud. 16. On the third day in the morning, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud on and the sound of a very loud horn. 
Okay, they were affected. They were trembling. Shook them up. This was terrifying, actually. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this is a terrifying experience. So notice in verse 16, there's a time frame. It's historical. A particular day. Particular part of a day. There's thunder, audible. There's lightning, it's visible. You can see the flashes, flashes of lightning. Thick cloud, again, uh, you, you sense something going on. So that, you know, a loud trumpet, more audible sounds here. So this is a real public event. Mark, you got 18 and 19 again. Notice. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Okay, the quaking, like an earthquake, shaking, noise, thunder again, lightning flashes, sounds of a trumpet again. And chapter 20, verse... Uh, verse 19. And the 19 was, uh, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Okay, so again, more audible. And chapter 20, verse 1 there. Read two as well. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you off of Egypt on the house of my mission. Okay. I am the Lord your God. He speaks. They were able to audibly hear the Ten Commandments. So it's a public, real event. We call that historical. Sense? So that's a characteristic of the giving of the law. Number six. The law was comprehensive. It dealt with every aspect of Israel's life, both private and public. It was comprehensive. It dealt with family issues, so it dealt with the institution of the family. It even deals with physical phenomena like climate. Leviticus 26.4, Deuteronomy 28.12 and on, where it talks about blessings and cursing where the climate is going to be a blessing when the children of Israel are obedient. So it deals with climatology, it deals with family, it deals with agriculture. There's going to be production or lack of production based on obedience or lack of thereof. It deals with all of their animals, the productivity of their animals and the ability of them to multiply and to provide sustenance and reproduction, herds and, and that sort of thing. So, agriculture, uh, animals, it dealt with all of the health issues. So, it dealt medically. And it gives instructions concerning how do you deal with different situations on a medical level. It dealt with the military. It dealt with enemies. It dealt with neighbors. So, it dealt with international issues. And there's verses for all of these that I'm giving you here. It did... Hmm? Property, yeah. You, you, in fact, you can't think of an area that's not dealt with in the Mosaic Law in terms of Israel's national dealings. It dealt with economic issues, so it had to do with money and sales and those sort of things. It dealt with uh, even debt the, in terms of the economic issue of debt. How do you handle debt and who do you get indebted to and who do you avoid indebtedness to? Deals with slaves and relationships in slaves, with particularly within homes and families. It dealt with all of the dietary issues. What do you even eat? Even deals in chapter Leviticus 15 with sanitary issues. How you deal with those issues? Every area. Sexual realm dealt with all of the sexual issues. What is permissible, what is not permissible. And one of the big things is the Sabbath itself. So it's pretty comprehensive. There's not an area of life that is not covered. And essentially, the Ten Commandments are a summary of all of those areas. And these other areas are just an expansion of those Ten Commandments. So it's comprehensive. Seventh, another characteristic, it has a particular literary form. Literary form. Archaeology has demonstrated that the Mosaic Law fits a pattern of covenants that were made at that time in Mosaic period that are called suzerainty vassal treaties. A suzerainty vassal treaty of that time 
was a contract that a ruling king would enter into with subject either nations or tribes or peoples. And that sovereign or the suzerain, in other words, the the master king or leader, he would promise certain things. And one of the main things is he would protect these people. He would also regulate the economy such that they could survive, although they had a part in that. So these were all specified in this the suzerainty vassal treaties. And obviously the vassal would be these people that were under this sovereign or this king or this leader. And there would be stipulations relating to the vassals. In other words, what they were to do. And mainly they were to obey. They were mainly to serve. They were mainly the ones that accomplished the the work that would promote the, the economy. And there was an arrangement here. There was a contract between the suzerain and the vassals. The vassals could have been subject peoples that were conquered, or they could be tribes within that national entity. Well, the Mosaic Covenant fits into this literary form. It's a suzerainty vassal agreement. And it begins even in chapter 20 where we have the ultimate sovereign, God himself, speaking these words, and he declares himself as the sovereign God is to be worshipped above all other gods, and no other gods are to be worshipped. First two commandments deal with the worship of the one true God. And in the suzerainty vassal treaty, loyalty was only to be given to the the sovereign, or the king, or the, the suzerain. Does that make sense? So it fits that literary form which is an interesting kind of confirmation from archaeology that this was a real document, a real covenant, much like other covenants that existed in the period of the Old Testament. And just to give you kind of a sense visually of what that area looks like, there's Jebu Musa. They built a little church on the top, the mountains beyond. Pretty rugged, pretty desolate area. Another view there. Now, specifically, let's take a look specifically at the Ten Commandments. And the first thing to note in terms of the Ten Commandments, they are the heart and the essence of the Mosaic Law. The heart and the essence of the Mosaic Law. And I've already said the rest of the Mosaic Law is kind of an expansion of the Ten Commandments. That's why they're so important. Secondly, you can divide the Ten into two parts. The first four commandments protect God himself and deal primarily with the worship of the only, the one true God. So God, as it says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he is the sovereign that brought these people out, redeemed them, and therefore he has rights over them. Brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, why does he state that? I worship is They grew up, as Linda's indicating, in Egypt where there were many gods. Remember what we talked about last week? The many Egyptians' gods. This is their mindset. This is their worldview that there are many gods. God is saying those are no gods, and he demonstrated it in uh, the plagues that he was superior to their so-called gods. And it finalized it with the Exodus. So now he is the only one to be worshipped, because the others are no gods at all. Plus, Merrill makes it, he emphasizes the fact that uh, he knew the land they were going into. Yes. The were very idolistic. Very good. He preempted that. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. Everybody get that? Not only did they come out of Egypt, which had many gods, but God was going to lead them into a land where the Canaanites were very similar in terms of they had many gods. So the first commandment kind of sets all of the boundaries right away in terms of one God. And the second one reiterates that you shall not make for yourself, an image or an idol 
which was true of the Egyptian gods, which would be true also in the future of the Canaanite gods. They had all these idols, these images. God cannot be localized in an image, so don't do it. Otherwise, it limits the true God. So the first two commandments deal with protecting God's person and worship. And even the third speaks of not using the Lord's name in vain. In other words, attaching God's name to those things that are useless. And the fourth commandment sets aside a particular day that is to be devoted to the worship of the one true God. That's the Sabbath. So those are the first four commandments dealing with God. The last six commandments, five through ten, protect mankind. Protection of the family is the fifth commandment. Protection of life itself, thou shalt not murder. Commandment number six. Protection of marriage, that's number seven. Protection of property. So the Bible and the Ten Commandments speaks of private property, which is an important principle. Socialism goes against that commandment because private property is not permitted under a socialistic system. But the Bible permits and, in fact, promotes private property, and it protects it with that eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And then the ninth commandment protects reputation or character, speaking libelous things against people is prohibited. Then the tenth commandment protects the individual heart of coveting. Thou shalt not covet your own personal heart. So it protects mankind in general. You have protections for God, protections of mankind, and that is the heart of all of the Mosaic law. And the Ten Commandments are more the spiritual aspect and the outworking of it. You have that in the details that follow. And all of this took place at a particular location that you can visualize and even visit today if the traditional site is the actual place. This sets forth a foundation for law. So this would be the biblical foundation for law. First of all, law is rooted in God's standards. They come from him. So law, ultimately, does not come from culture. It comes from God. And that pattern is set in the Mosaic law. And, and by the way, a lot that you have in the Mosaic law is not new. In other words, God has already revealed certain standards that now are simply codified in a particular law. In other words, are made into a written document, a written contract. But things like uh, thou shalt not murder, that goes all the way to, to Cain. I mean, murder is prohibited all the way Cain and Abel. Those are the absolutes. Did he give them that law, or they? Yes, because they, Cain knew that this was wrong. So they're rooted in God's standards that even precede the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And what does he do from the very beginning in terms of creation? How many days of creation are there? There's six days of creation and a day of rest. And when you get to the Mosaic Law, it becomes part of a written document contract code, but the concept is already there from the beginning of creation. In fact, that's why God creates in six days. It's more, it's a pattern that he would put in law later on. So it's rooted in God's standards. And secondly, we've already touched on this, it's based on absolutes, based on God's absolutes, not relativism, like our culture emphasizes relativism. Thirdly, Law is guided by revelation. It's given by God. God speaks it. And in the case of Mosaic Law, from Sinai. It's not guided by humanism. It's not out of the minds of man. It's revelation. There are some things in the law that only God could specify. And by the way, most law codes, even our law code, a lot of law codes are based on the Mosaic Law. So laws that we have formulated in our country at the founding, many of them were based on what is found in the Mosaic Law. So it didn't come from man, it ultimately comes from 
God's revelation. Fourthly, law involves heart responses. Heart responses. And again, we cannot enforce heart responses. All we can deal with is external behavior in the laws that we put together. So it involves heart responses. It's not legalism. It's not legalism. Number five, laws designed to protect society, not to control it. Again, our culture, we pass laws in order to control. In fact, the entire tax code is sometimes designed to try to control behavior. That's an abuse. Law, from a biblical perspective, protects society, doesn't control it, doesn't attempt to control it. In fact, it promotes freedom. So that's your foundation for law, or at least a starting point. Implications. First one, it's Israel's constitution. Number two, I gave you the characteristics of law, and particularly Mosaic law, and you can summarize them in absolutes. Number three, what is the purpose of law?